So welcome to week two of Advent, uh, this, this season of expectancy, of waiting, or figuratively waiting again for Jesus. Uh, we're going through a series right now called A Time for Hope, and looking at why we can have hope in Jesus, and we're doing that by looking into the Old Testament at some of the prophecies that, that pointed forward to Jesus. So today we're going to be in, mainly in Isaiah 53. Uh, but starting a little bit in Isaiah 52, so you can be there if you want to. If you have a copy of the scriptures, that's great. If you don't, you can use your phone or you can use, there's Bibles in the back, which are always there for your taking. If you don't own one or you want one that's a little more modern than the one you have at home, you're welcome to that. Um, So one of the concepts that we're going to talk about today and next week a little bit is this idea of shalom, which you may have heard this as like a Jewish greeting, shalom, and it's, it's transliterated, peace. But really what it means is the wholeness that's found in being in God and being with God, the peace that's found with him. Uh, it, it means, you know, a goodness in relationships, a goodness in relationship with God, his presence being with us, provision, everything that he, he does to care for us. And it means purpose. It means being able to live out what God's called us to do. And the sum total of it is it's a good life. It's the full life, and it's what was in Eden in the beginning with Adam and Eve. But in our rebellion, in our sin, we broke the shalom of God. And so ever since then, mankind has been on a quest to find it. And I would even argue that a lot of what we do in life is an attempt to get back to that. It's an attempt to get back to the shalom and the peace of God that we had in the garden. And so to even help set the stage a little bit further for this passage today in Isaiah, I just want to give you a little bit of context. If you remember from last week, Isaiah uh, is a prophet. He, he speaks prophetically about things that are going to come on the people of Israel and the people of Judah, God's children on earth. And he has, he has warned them about uh, that they're going to be carted off to Babylon, this foreign empire, and they're going to spend years in exile there. And eventually we see that that it happens, that, that Jerusalem, their capital city, is destroyed. The northern kingdom of Israel gets carried away first. Then Judah falls and Jerusalem falls. The temple, which is, sometimes I think we think of a temple as like just this little place that they would go to. But this was like the place. This was the place in all of Israel where the children of God would come and worship him. It was this massive building with gold and ornate wood structures. And, and it gets leveled to the ground. And the people, all of their villages get destroyed, their towns, homes, and they get carted off to Babylon, and they find themselves outside of the protection of the covenant God and, and hopeless, wondering what are we going to do to get back to that shalom, back to the goodness of God. And, and it, Isaiah tells them this, that this all would happen because they wouldn't stay true to the God of the covenant, that they wouldn't stay devoted to him despite the fact that he was devoted to them, that they like their own comfort. They would go and they would make sacrifices to idols. It says that they would sacrifice their own children to to other gods, these gods of of metal and stone and wood, created things that they had made with their own hands. He says that they would would treat each other poorly. They would would act uh, without justice towards one another. They would pervert justice. They would lie, steal, cheat, murder, and eventually God allows this to happen to them, that they would be carted off because they're not fulfilling their side of the covenant of loving God and loving others. This was the purpose of the law. So after, after 70 years of being in exile, all right, so they get carted off to Babylon, and after 70 years in Babylon, they were allowed to return back. And so Babylon falls, Persia comes up, the king of Persia, Cyrus, says, you can go back. Feel free to go back to your homelands and start worshiping your God again, because he was kind of relativistic and said, everybody can worship their own God, that's fine, go back to your land and do that. So, so they go back, and under a man named Nehemiah and Ezra, they start building the temple again. 
They want to build the temple again. They want to do everything again to get, to get God's shalom, God's presence to come back, and God's blessing to come back on the land, but it never does. We see that God's presence never really returns to the temple. And what we see in the passage we're going to study today and some of the sections after Isaiah 39 is Isaiah trying to encourage the people to go back and worship your God with all of your heart. This isn't about your ritual behavior, despite what you think. This is about your hearts. And to remember that he, God, is the compassionate one. He is the one who forgives. He is the faithful one. He calls God a husband who says he, he only loves you. You are his, his wife, his children. Be with him, and he wants to be with you. And ultimately, he says, he's the one that sent you to Babylon in the first place. He didn't lose any power in this. He's the one that allowed you to go there because of your breaking of the covenant. Come back into covenant relationship with him. Now, to me, what's interesting about this predicament that the people of Israel and Judah find themselves in is that they were trying to do all of this religious stuff. Like, you, you see that they're going to temple. They're going and they're making sacrifices. They're giving money to try and make the temple great. They're, they're, they're trying to make, do all these sacrificial offerings and all these, these burnt offerings. They're giving money. They're going to church, so to speak, every week. They're going to you know, synagogue, and, and they're trying to do all these religious behaviors. And what God says to them right in the beginning of Isaiah, he says, I don't care about your rituals. I don't care about all of your sacrifices. Now, can you imagine if they're them? They're only doing what they thought the law told them to do. And he says, they're actually meaningless to me. And he says, they're meaningless to me because you have blood on your hands. You, you've been acting un, in, like with injustice towards the world around you. You're not loving the world. He says, so you can do all this religious stuff, but when your heart is far from me, I'm far from you. So he says, this is a matter about a heart issue. So that's what happens in the first 39 chapters and into the, the 40th chapter, we see God saying these things. What happens in Isaiah 40, though, if you study it, is you see that the tone starts to change. Isaiah starts to, to give them hope. And, and people, scholars think that this means it's actually post-exile preaching. He's encouraging them about who they get to be when they come back from exile. Instead of this ritualistic, empty-hearted people, he says, this is actually, there's a place for hope here, that you can have hope in what's going to happen. He says that actually a healer is going to come. A warrior God is going to come, and he's going to defend you, and he's going to make things right. And in Isaiah 49 to 52, I know these are just numbers to you, but if you want to go home and look at this, you can. Isaiah 49 to 52, we see Isaiah start using words like, God is your redeemer. God is the strong one. God is the one who carries the promise. He's the one that carries you. He says, God will contend on your behalf. He will fight for you, and he will get you back. He says, you will, you will move out and God will be your front and rear guard. He will protect you and walk with you. And Isaiah refers to this a couple times as the arm of the Lord. He says, you're going to see the arm of the Lord come to bear. You're going to see the, the Lord bear his arm towards the earth and you're going to be set free. So the people begin waiting for this type of warrior to come. They're waiting for this strong one to come who will bear his arm and vindicate the people of God, who will crush the enemies of God, this warrior God who will bear his arm. So that's 49 to 52. In Isaiah 54 and 56, we see the language change again and the tone change again, and we start to see this invitation from God or from Isaiah to the people to say, return, return from exile, come back, 
There is no more judgment. It's time to, to, to celebrate, to be jubilant. The passage we covered last week, Isaiah 61, is all about how this is the year of the Lord's favor. He's come to set the oppressed free. And there's all these promises that start to happen. It looks like the shalom of God coming again for the people of Israel. That somehow they've finally been healed from all of their unrighteous behavior, their inability to keep the covenant. And he says, now that you're back into the covenant, good things, the blessings of God are going to come. The shalom of God is going to come on earth for you. But if you're paying attention, 49 to 52, warrior God, 54 and on, the promises of God, the healing of God, we skipped over 53, which is where we find ourselves today because it ends up not being this warrior that they think. The Lord doesn't bear his arm in the way that he thinks he, they will, that he will. We see that instead of it being a, a warrior God, who fights on behalf of Israel and returns cruelty and oppression on Israel's enemies with cruelty and oppression, he takes cruelty and oppression into himself and turns it back out as love and sacrifice, which is not at all what Israel thought was going to happen. This is not at all what they thought. They were waiting for the Lord to bear his arm. I want you to, to read this with me in Isaiah 52. This is sort of finishing this, this first section here of God being the strong one, God bearing his arm. So in Isaiah 52, verse 10, this is what it says. The Lord will lay bare his holy arm in the sight of all the nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. So you can understand why people would think that this is going to be a warrior God. He says, depart, depart, go out from there. Touch no unclean thing. Come uh, come out from it and be pure, you who carry the vessels of the Lord meaning the, the, the articles of the temple. You're going to be bringing them back, he says. He says, but you will not leave in haste or go in flight. You're not going to be running like you're pursued. For the Lord will go before you. The God of Israel will be your rear guard. This is Exodus language. This is like, a picture, this is like the picture of Israel leaving Egypt, carrying all the goods that they had acquired, and they're moving out, and God is before them, and he's behind them, and he's protecting them, except instead of fleeing Egypt, running for their lives because they're scared, he says, you're actually going to move out in victory, and you're going to move back into the shalom of God. Well, to me, there's two things that are happening in this passage. There's a spiritual healing that's taking place, and there's a, a physical healing that we start to see promised. And so I want to I look at this, this spiritual and this physical thing, kind of two perspectives here. The first thing I want to point out, though, is, is, actually, I need to read Isaiah 53. I'm talking to you about it, and you haven't even read it yet. Okay, I'm going to read Isaiah 53. Strike that from the record. We'll go start from here. Uh, start in 52.13. He says, See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations, and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. So you see, this transition starts to happen. They're expecting a warrior, and he says, here's this ugly servant who's going to come, this servant who's marred and disfigured, and he's going to sprinkle the nations, and and, which ends up meaning with blood. He says the kings will shut their mouths and what they didn't even understand, they'll start to understand. Things they couldn't even believe to see, they'll start to believe. And then read 53. He says, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, 
nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, the word there is shalom. The punishment that brought us shalom was upon him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And who can speak of his descendants? Meaning he's dead, he's gone. There are no descendants from this servant. For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people, he was stricken. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. And the rich were kind of, they're looked down upon in this passage. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. So now this servant that was dead is now alive. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So like I said, there's, there's two things happening here. There's, there's physical healing, this idea of resurrection that happens, and there's spiritual healing of the people being made right and put back into the shalom and the blessing of God. And ultimately, what we see here is this, this image of a servant as a sheep. And I want to point out two things about that. If you look, I think it's in verse, where is it? Verse 11, verse 16. Uh, da, 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 da. Verse 6, sorry. He says, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is hearkening back to Leviticus 16. All right, in Leviticus 16, we see God set up sort of the, the, the sacrifices that would happen to atone for the people's sin. What would have to happen for them to be able to be in the presence of God and to be purified of all of their unrighteousness? And what they would do is they would take two, two goats and they would... Literally, the priest would grab hold of the horns of one of them and figuratively lay the sins of the people on it and then send it out into the wilderness. This is where we get the idea of the scapegoat. They would lay the sins of the people on and they would send it out into the wilderness and say, carry your sins away. Remember our sins no more, God. Carry them away out into the wilderness so that they are forgotten. And that's the language that Isaiah is using here, that God's giving Isaiah to use to say, the sins have been laid on him and he has become the scapegoat for the people. But then he goes on from there to also say that, that this lamb, this ram, ends up being killed. He says, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. The other part of the atonement sacrifice in Leviticus 16 is that of a, a sheep that gets slaughtered. It would literally, the priest would kill a sheep and take its blood and sprinkle it, you see back in here, he would sprinkle it and put it on the altar, and it would, again, it would 
symbolically purify the priest and purify the people so they could be in the presence of God. This is what's happening here. Isaiah is using this language to say, this servant who's going to come, he's not going to be a great warrior who bears his arm and kills people and oppresses people and puts people into slavery like our humanity would want. He says it's actually going to be a servant that comes and takes on the form of the atonement, who takes on the atonement sacrifice and is led as a scapegoat out into the wilderness carrying the sins of the people, who is led to the altar and slaughtered and have his blood sprinkled over the altar so that the people can be in the presence of God. Friends, Israel was expecting a warrior God who would free them from people like Babylon, people like Assyria, people like Persia. And you would think that they'd be mentioned here in this passage, but it's not. They're not. It ends up being sin that gets mentioned. We see that the oppression of sin is what the Lord bears his arm against. And he comes and frees the people from that via the atonement of this servant, the atoning death of this servant. The the, the righteous requirement that the people couldn't meet in the covenant that was preventing them from even entering the shalom and peace of God is met by God. He requires it, he demands our righteousness, and he provides it via this atoning servant. We can't enter the shalom of God without him acting on our behalf. This isn't anything that we can do to bring about. Now, religion, okay, religious behavior, the rituals would say, you're not good enough. And we'd say, okay, right, I I agree, I'm not good enough. And they would say, now try really hard. Do a whole lot. Go to church every week, make sure you give a lot, make sure you're there every weekend, make sure you're serving in all the programs, make sure you're reading your Bible, memorizing scripture, you better be praying 24 hours a day, then maybe you'll be righteous. This is not what this passage is preaching. This passage preaches that we can't do it, that it has to come through the atoning sacrifice of the lamb on our behalf. Or The world will say, you're fine. You're fine. There's no such thing as sin. You're righteous. Just believe believe in yourself and everything will be great. Stand up straight, walk tall, be proud. Everything will be great. You don't need to do anything. We know through all of Scripture we see that people are unrighteous. And the gospel says, yeah, they are. We've provided a way out, God says. We send the servant on your behalf who lives a righteous life, who frees you from both the world's ignorance and religion's try-hard type atmosphere. We see that God has given one who is sacrificed on our behalf to cover our inadequacies, to cover our iniquities, to cover our sins via this atonement. And now, instead of us trying to carry ourselves in righteousness or us trying to carry ourselves as we're just good people, God says, I carry you. I carry you. I've put you in my hand, he says. Look at 5310. This is a, a phenomenal to me. After all this talking about the servant being killed, being set apart and, and pushed outside and ugly and deformed and not going to have offspring and, and nothing to come after him, he says in verse 10, it was the Lord's will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days. And the, the Lord will prosper in his hand. He says he will live again. He will prosper, and what God wants is in his hand, and he will carry it to completion. It reminded me uh, of John 10. Uh, In John 10, Jesus is talking to his disciples and talking to some of the, the religious leaders that were around him, and he starts describing himself as a shepherd. If you want to turn there, you can. If not, you can just take a look at it this week. It's a phenomenal passage about the shepherd uh, caring for his sheep. He says, 
He says, I am the gate for the sheep. I'm the shepherd. I'm the one who will lay down my life for the sheep. He says, the thief comes to kill and destroy. Religion, the world, it comes to kill and destroy. He says, but I've come to give you life and give it to the full. I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Now listen to this in verse 27. He says, my sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. My father who has given them to me, put it into his hand like Isaiah says, he's greater than all. No one can snatch them out of my father's hand and I and the father are one. There's this, this idea happening here that he says, I hold all of you. He says, I hold the sheep in my hand and no one can take them away from me. It's exactly what he's saying in 53.10, that he will have offspring who he holds in his hand and he carries and he carries and we don't need to carry ourselves anymore. We can put our hope in the healer who's come to spiritually heal us, atone for our sins, give us righteousness, and then he carries us in that. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture. So today we're going to take communion together and I want you to think about this spiritual healing that is made available to us by the servant Jesus. I want you to, to remember his, his body carried outside of the camp, outside of the city, out into the wilderness, carrying our sins. People are getting ready to pray, don't worry. Remember this, this body of this servant Jesus, the, the lamb, the, the atonement, who goes outside of the city carrying our sins on him. And then remember his blood that was spilled on a cross, sprinkled as an atonement so that we could be made righteous, so that we could be healed. This is the spiritual healing that we have in Jesus, in the servant, the warrior God who bears his arm not to fight physical kingdoms, but to fight spiritual oppression and sin. This is the healer who we put our hope in at Advent. This is who we are looking forward to and celebrate coming in the person of Jesus. Now, spiritual healing, but there's also physical healing in Jesus, which I want to talk about this just for a second. In this passage, we see that there is a a servant who is brutally beaten for our transgressions and yet rises to life. So there's this power over death already seen, over physical pain and death already seen in this passage. Now, if you remember last week when we talked about Isaiah 61, that Jesus goes into Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and they hand him the scroll of Isaiah and he reads from Isaiah 61. And he says, the, the oppressed are going to be set free. The blind are going to be given sight. Those, those in prison are going to be set free. I'm for the light. He goes on and on and on. And he says, All, this is fulfilled today in me. He says, I'm doing this in your midst. And then he goes on in Luke 4 to say, God has always been about healing people. And not just children of God, not just true Israelites. He says, we healed this person in a foreign land, and God healed this person in a foreign land. And remember this, people get really mad at him, and they threaten to run him, you know, try to run him out of town, throw him off a cliff. God is, he's, Jesus is saying, we heal everyone who wants to be healed. He goes on from there in Luke 4 to talk about Peter's mother, who's ill, and he goes and heals her. We see him go on from there and talk about a, a man who was possessed by demons, and Jesus goes and, and, and kicks the demons out of the man. And what we see is that Jesus is coming face to face, bearing the arm of the Lord against the spiritual oppression of the enemy, of Satan, of the devil, whatever you want to call the enemy of God, whatever name you want to give him in this case. He says, I am battling against this, and I've come to bring 
people the shalom of God. I've come to put people back in a right relationship with God. Oftentimes, part of what that looks like is physical healing. Now, this same thing is covered in Matthew 8. And I want to just read this brief little section to you. Matthew 8, verse 14, it says this. Jesus came into Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother in bed with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she got up and began to wait on them. When evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out the spirits with a word and healed all the sick. This was to fulfill, listen to what Matthew says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities and carried our diseases. Matthew adds this little editorial that Luke doesn't put in there. Luke and Matthew describe the exact same events. Peter's mother healing the the man possessed by demons, and Matthew adds in. This was to fulfill Isaiah 53, that that this servant would come and carry our physical infirmities, our burdens, and could heal us of them. Now, if you go on from there, to me, this is just unbelievable. It's fascinating. In in chapter 9, listen to this story. Jesus steps into a boat crossed over and came to his own town. So now he's back in his own town again. Some men brought him a paralytic, so this guy who's paralyzed and can't move, lying on a mat. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, take heart, son, your sins are forgiven. Now, I don't know about you, but if I'm paralyzed and on a mat and I've been carted in front of Jesus and he says, your your sins are forgiven, I'm like, great, I would like to walk. Like, this is why I have been brought here. So, but Jesus starts with, this idea of, son, your sins are forgiven. At this, some of the teachers of the law said to themselves, this fellow is blaspheming, meaning only God is allowed to forgive sin. This guy from Nazareth can't be making this claim. Knowing their thoughts, Jesus said, why do you entertain evil thoughts in your hearts? Which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk? I mean, really, which is easier to say? Your sins are forgiven or get up and walk? Obviously, your sins are forgiven, right? I mean, the the getting up and walking is incredible. And Jesus goes on, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he turns to the paralytic and says, get up, take your mat, and go home. And the man got up and went home. When the crowd saw this, they were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. These people bring this paralyzed man to Jesus. And it's clear that he's in need of physical healing. But I can tell you that in that day, the people would have looked on this paralyzed man and said, this is his fault. This is his fault. He did something that deserved this. Or they would say, this is his parents' fault. They did something that means he, was, he deserved to be born like this. And they would look at him as unrighteous and say, he doesn't belong, he can't go to the temple, he can't do some of the the religious things that we all get to do because of his paralyzation. So there's this idea of of unrighteousness and uncleanness about this man. So when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, do you understand what's happening? He's actually welcoming this man into the kingdom of God. He's saying, despite even your physical brokenness, brokenness, despite the fact that others might say that you deserve this or your parents deserve it, he says, welcome to the kingdom of God. Welcome into the shalom of God. Your sins are forgiven. You can be clean and be a part of what God is doing on earth. This is 
antithetical to what Israel thought up to that point. They can't believe that God would do such a thing. But the forgiveness of sins was a declarative statement by Jesus, the suffering servant, to say that this paralyzed man, the demon-possessed, the foreigners, the adulteress, the women who he talked to, who he shouldn't have been talking to, tax tax collectors, the leprous, he says, they all can be forgiven and healed and brought into the shalom of God. And the religious leaders just couldn't handle this. They're like, no, 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 they're out, we're in, it doesn't work like that. And Jesus says, well, actually it does, and he heals the man. So in both the spiritual and the physical sense, Jesus is a suffering servant that has the authority to take away our sin and, and cleanse us and return us into the shalom of God, into the relationship with God as Lord and King. And furthermore, he has the ability to carry our physical well-being as well. He has the, the means and the ability and the authority to carry our physical burdens and to heal us as well. When, when my wife and I were in the Middle East, uh, there was a woman there who came and w- was coming to our center regularly to, to learn English, and we found out that she had had five miscarriages and couldn't have children. And in that culture, now granted, in any culture, when you have children and you want to, it's an incredible burden, an incredibly painful experience. In the Arab culture, for her to not have kids was a shame on her, and it was a shame on her husband. Her husband was being told, take a second wife. Take a second wife so, so you can have kids that go on and bear your name, and, and this man was honorable to his wife and said, no, I don't want to do that, and, but he was getting pressured by his culture, and so this woman came to us for prayer and, and Jess and uh, another one of the international workers who was there, uh, this woman boldly said, we, we can't heal you, but if you want us to pray for you in Jesus' name, we can. Now, this woman was Muslim, like, th- they shouldn't have been doing this. <laughs> and, she, and this woman says, whatever it takes. Like, you want to pray for me in Jesus' name, that's fine. And Jess and this, this woman prayed for her, and she ended up getting pregnant. And she ended up delivering a baby girl. And, but the funniest part is when, when they left, when this woman left, uh, the woman who was with Jess says, I hope Jesus comes through because, uh, you know, this is going to be really disappointing if he doesn't. And sure enough, this woman got pregnant. And, and God was good to, to provide this to her as a demonstration of his authority and power to, to bring healing and to bring people into the shalom of God if they want it. Now, it's God's authority and his power that heals. Sometimes he chooses to, sometimes he doesn't. But first and foremost, we get to be healed spiritually and have relationship with God, to be brought into wholeness of relationship with him, beginning of the shalom, of the promise of the full life now and forever. There are times when he wants to demonstrate his authority and his power in our lives and his goodness to us by bringing physical healing. There are times when he doesn't when he simply wants us to persevere, but know that we have a relationship with him that will be strong enough to carry us through it. And we get to put a stake in the ground when we look at the love of God through the crucifixion of Jesus to say, I know my God is good. I know he's powerful and loves me. And I know that he has the power over death and can resurrect me someday, even if I die from this disease. Even if I die never having had kids, even if I die because of cancer, 
We all will die, but we get to put a stake in the ground and say, God, I know you are good. You have spiritually healed me and put me into the shalom of God, into the righteous relationship with God. Give me strength to bear this into eternity and know that we have all of eternity to enjoy full physical health. But we also believe now that Jesus likes to heal people sometimes. I can't give you some prescription as to why he does it sometimes and why he doesn't other times. But we believe that God heals. We see it over and over again in Scripture, and we see it over in people's lives. So today, what I'm asking you to do is to put your trust in Jesus, the suffering servant, who made atonement for us to be in right relationship with God. We can't overcome this by our religious behavior, and we have to admit that sin is real and we actually have to deal with it. And the gospel says Jesus has dealt with it on our behalf. You can have a right relationship with God. So I'd ask you to take part in communion as ones who have been spiritually healed. And I want you to believe that because of the power of God over death and the ability by his spirit to provide resurrection through Jesus, he can provide physical healing. He can provide relational healing, emotional healing, psychological healing. So I want you to consider, if you have something in your life that you want to be prayed for, to go and be prayed for. We have members of our team who, we have two classrooms set up out there where you can go and be prayed for. So I'd like you to take communion in a couple minutes, celebrate the spiritual healing that we've been offered, and consider being prayed over for physical healing or relational healing, whatever it is, emotional healing that you want to be prayed for. So I want to, I'm a teacher at heart, and I'm, I'm, most of you I know personally, and you're my friends, so here's what I'm going to tell you. This is what this looks like. We have two classrooms set up. Kevin and Jess are in one room. Jesse and David are in another room. And here's what we do. We ask people to come in. Husbands and wives can come. Couples can come, whatever. If you're more comfortable praying with women, we can have two women pray for you as well, whatever you want. But this is what we do. We ask people to share, what's your need? What's going on with you? What are you struggling with? We ask you if there's anything that you're wrestling with that maybe you need to confess. Not necessarily to us, but if you want to confess something to God, the book of James says, confess. Confess your sins. Confess whatever it is that's burdening you to God. And then what we do is we have a little thing of olive oil. It looks like a little drug vial. That's not what it is. It's just a little vial. You can laugh at that. It's just a little vial of olive oil from my kitchen. Okay, there's nothing magic about it. But we take that and we put it on your forehead as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. All throughout Scripture, we see the anointing of the Holy Spirit come through this this putting on of oil. So we're not going to pour it over your head like David, but we'll put a little bit on your forehead just as a symbol of the Holy Spirit. Put a hand on your shoulder if you will let us and pray for you and pray that God will heal you. It's actually a pretty sweet moment. And so it's not weird. It's not long. It's not super emotional. I just want you to know that it's normal and this is who we are, that we believe in a God who heals and we're going to do that together. So I'm going to ask you, Sue's going to play in a minute. I'm going to ask you to go back and take communion. It's back there on the table. And then if you want to be prayed for while you're up, just feel free to kind of head out that door back there and you'll be guided to the two classrooms that are available to you. If a line forms, just stand there awkwardly. You can talk to each other. You can sing whatever you want to do. But I really want that to be available to you, to know that God loves you. He carries you spiritually and physically and emotionally as well. So would you stand? I'm going to pray. And we're going to take communion together, and then we're going to sing some songs together. But if you want to go and be prayed for, feel free to do that. Father, thank you. Thank you that you are a warrior God 
who bared your arm to free the people of God. But that instead of dealing out more oppression and cruelty, you dealt out love and sacrifice through your servant Jesus. Jesus, thank you for your loving sacrifice on our behalf. Thank you for being our atonement, that that by your body being pierced, by your blood being spilled, and our trust in you, we get to have right relationship now and into eternity. That we can have spiritual healing. But God, there are those of us in the room who also need physical healing, who need emotional healing, who need relational healing, and we need wisdom and the ability to persevere. Would you give us the courage to go and be prayed for, just as, as, as a family, as friends with one another? Would you help us carry one another's burdens like you call us to? Help us walk in this life together by being prayed for today. In Jesus' name, amen. Feel free, Sue's going to play some music quietly right now. Feel free to pray or go back and take communion as well.